So, um, uh, you know, there's a therefore at verse 10, and we, we talked about it, and then in 12, for this reason. Well, <laughs> what's the therefore and what's the reason? So uh, there's a lot to it, but we'll back up at 5 and just get a running start. At But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will uh, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And I want to take the time in the midst of this, that call in the election and making it sure. Uh, the sure is for your reassurance. Okay? It doesn't change whether you are or not. Okay, so you're not like making sure you're saved. Christ has done that for you. Okay, and that is in the election, and that's eternal, and it happened before we were born. Okay, predestination is a real thing. And I understand people want to divide hairs and argue over this, but you're talking about an eternal subject matter that God relates to us, and then we, in our finite mind, want to argue about who's right on which side of that column. If we are saved, it is by the grace of God. And, and we need to make that call sure in our own mind, in our own heart, in our own behavior, is, is what he's encouraging us towards there. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, this is where we are this evening, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Um, this is one of the mockeries that is hurled at Calvary Chapel is the repetitive nature of our teaching. Um, we go verse by verse. When we get to the end, we go back to the beginning. We run through the whole thing again. Uh, you know, it, it's not a fast process. Um, I, you know, we've been here 20 years. I've been from Genesis to Revelation three times now. Um, and really, that's a pretty quick pace. Um, uh, you look at... Um, uh, Chuck Smith beginning Calvary Chapel and talked to men like Joe Foch and they were going to Bible studies every night of the week. Every night of the week. And Chuck was teaching 10 chapters in a week. Okay. They covered the word of God in three years at that pace. Chuck said that his second time through was 10 years. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm slowing down uh, dramatically. I, I had that fervence to get through. Uh, and uh, 
you know, each time you, you, I go through, it's sort of that sense of like, calm down, slow down, you know, learn myself included, digest, understand. Um, and when we do that to be obedient to uh, what Paul said, uh, when he said, uh, I am, you know, innocent of all men's blood in that I have not neglected to teach you the whole counsel of God's word. You can't say that unless you've taught the whole Bible. Okay, so, um, you know, I understand people come in and they learn for a while and the Lord takes them elsewhere, but it needs to be that for myself, I have that understanding that what I'm doing is teaching the whole council. I'm not, I have pet subjects and it would be, you know, like very entertaining, self-entertaining for me to just dwell on those, stay on those. There are passages and subjects which are challenging, um, and uh, you know we we teach them. One of the things that um, just had a kind of an interesting conversation recently, where um, a a pastor that I know and respect profoundly um, uh, was saying that uh, you know he he would never want to be in my position and particularly would not ever want to teach the book of Revelation. And um, it is challenging, and I, I, I actually respect his position in saying that for because I know and understand the ministry that the Lord has him in. Uh, you know, but uh, again, 26.8% of the scripture is prophecy. So... Um, you know, I, I find it as a pastor, right, uh, root definition meaning feeder. I find it uh, necessary to feed. Uh, I find it necessary as far as being obedient uh, to my shepherd to, as a shepherd, teach the whole counsel of God's word. Um, and it is a struggle uh, at times to come to certain passages and subjects and where the scripture is silent and you'd love to be opinionated uh, to, you know, pastors are opinionated if you haven't noticed that. And uh, to leave things alone that uh, the, the word of God leaves alone. Um, but at the same time, when the word of God speaks, even though it's challenging to say, okay, I've got to be a serious student and dig in here and go find and, you know, search out. They're hidden in the scripture, right? It's the glory of the Lord to hide a thing, glory of kings to seek them out, to find them. You know, so so to dig and to find and and to mine through uh, this process and discover what the Lord has hidden here, I, I think it's necessary. You know, it, it's not. You know, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back to them over and over and over and over. When we when we find treasure, you know God's grace in this particular book of Bible, and then over here we find God's grace. We're going to be sure to examine that there and uh, discover what it is that the Lord has to say. Uh, this was actually the accusation that they brought against Isaiah, right? Now you, you know I'm paraphrasing, but there there uh, those that uh, denounced him said, "Oh, he's a simpleton." 
He just teaches the same thing over and over again. Just line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, like, like, you just everywhere you go, the guy's just teaching you lessons about the Bible. It's annoying, is what they were saying. And I think that, that needs to be. And I, when I discover that in someone, to me, that speaks of the spirit, right? The spirit which inspired this, that wrote this this way. You're going to find the grace of God in the depths of the Old Testament and in the depths of the New Testament. The grace of God. Salvation has always been by grace. Abraham was saved by grace. Right? Not works. By grace. Right? It was accounted to him as righteousness. Uh, so, so salvation didn't change in the New Testament and become by grace. It's always been by grace. So you need to go find that and expose that and show that and learn that and teach that. So if the Holy Spirit hit it that way throughout the Scripture... Grace, salvation, these different things. Then the person who's indeed filled with the Holy Spirit and teaching, you would think, would have the same characteristics as the Word of God in that regard. So, so here, I, you know, I don't find it tedious. I don't find it difficult. It's not hard for me. He's saying, you know, to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right. As long as I am in this tent, and that pertains to a number of different aspects here in this tent that he's referring to, his body, um, you know, the temporary dwelling place of his soul and his spirit. Uh, so he's in his tent to stir you up by reminding you. Listen, <clears throat> there's an old saying, maybe you say it a lot, uh, time heals all wounds, okay? Many of us know that's not true, okay? But in saying that, what we're saying is, over time you forget things. <laughs> that's really what we're saying. Time heals all wounds. Really, I forget how bad that hurts, you know, is what, is what you're saying. Uh, you know, the healing that's taking place is a forgetfulness, the necessity of reminder. It, 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 is, it is a very, very important. That, that we be reminded, that we remind one another, that we spend time with one another, that we spend time in the Word, that we continuously refresh this. You know, you, know, you, you guys ever done that thing uh, where you blow out the candle and then you light the match and you just very slowly draw it in towards that smoke that's curling off the wick and before you ever touch the wick, it'll reignite uh, so it is with the christian that you can become extinguished and the further away from the ignition that you get the more you will smolder and fade you have to be brought back into proximity and, and therein you don't even have to you know have that exact context just being in proximity burst back into flame and uh, be reignited. You know, I don't know how many times, uh, you know, church ended on, you know, say uh, Sunday and uh, Monday pretty much extinguished the flame. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and by the time you get to Wednesday, you're really thinking like, I got no fire to drag myself through that door. 
and you step in and sit down and begin to sing it. You know, there's an ignition that happens, and praise God. And then, oh, hey, the word really, you know, brings things back to life. And you can walk out by the end of the Wednesday study. And thinking, man, am I, why was I thinking I didn't need to go to that? You know, it's so good for us. That constant necessity, right, of uh, the reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. And uh, he speaks specifically at the end of 15 of dying. So I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And of course, he's talking about the occasion where, and it's it's interesting if if you're thinking, uh, you know, when the Lord said to Peter, you know, right now I'm paraphrasing, but basically you get to go wherever you want to, but there's a time coming where, uh, men will take you by the hand, and that's the idea of forcibly and lead you where you do not want to go. Uh, when John tells us that the Lord was speaking of his coming death, okay, John writes that after Peter writes this, okay, uh, John is writing that in hindsight. Peter doesn't have that in focus here. He has his death in focus here, but he doesn't have the prediction of Jesus in focus in this uh, verse that we're reading. He, he knows what the Lord is saying to him right here, right now, in this moment, as he's writing about, I'm, I'm not long for this world, right? Uh, but it was John who made the realization of, oh, the Lord was actually speaking of his death. And what was to come, even though, you know, there was that discussion about what about John, <laughs> you know, in that moment uh, here, Peter doesn't have that that realization of the type of death that he was going to encounter. And we'll talk about that. So uh, he put put off my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of those things after my decease. And what he's specifically referring to is writing these epistles. He's specifically talking about, I'm putting it down as record so that you have this to rely upon. The word of God is so incredibly significant. People do not appreciate the word of God. Few, few appreciate the, the word of God for what it is and what it does. You know, the, the accuracy of the word is astonishing. And then uh, when you consider uh, the preservation of the word, um, you know, I, I've talked to you before. Again, I'm going to go through the whole thing. And, uh, you know, if you've heard it before, don't like roll your eyes and think, oh, I got to lose. It's the reminder. Okay. Uh, so uh, claims to be written by God, not men. Okay, and we've talked about the evidences that were discovered, Dr. Ivan Pannon and others who um, found the numerical sequencing in the Word of God uh, that we've talked about. Uh, but the copying of the Word, because that's another one of the big accusations, is that, oh, well, it's been changed over time. And, and part of that accusation actually comes from the other false religions of the world, because they have changed over time. Okay. If you look back at the things that were recorded that were being taught by, you know, take for instance Buddha. The things that are taught by Buddha's students 
are dramatically different than what was taught by Buddha. Okay, so, so over time, what happens is uh, the oral traditions change the belief system. Other belief systems get incorporated in, things get forgotten, things get changed, stuff is exaggerated, stuff is completely made up uh, along the way. Uh, you know, it is recorded that Buddha's mother conceived him uh, as a virgin, that she gave birth to him standing up without pain, that when he emerged from the womb, he emerged standing, capable of walking, walked to the four sacred points, meaning the compass, north, south, east, and west, signifying over them with his hand that they belonged to him as his creation. Yeah. That was written 356 years after Buddha's birth by a student of Buddhism. Okay, That wasn't recorded by Buddha. That wasn't recorded by his mother. That wasn't recorded by anyone in, in proximity to him in time. Centuries passed before that was. A, that's a dramatic change. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, when the Word of God makes a claim, when it is written down, everyone can go, okay, let's see if that comes true. And when it does, then you have to bow to its authority. And what is recorded there. So you have the claim of perfection uh, that, you know, the, Paul telling Timothy that the word of God is breathed by his spirit. Okay. So you have that level of uh, understanding. But then the preservation, right? Oh, it's been changed over time. Well, of course, Dead Sea Scrolls just blow that all to smithereens uh, because. Uh, you know, 1950s, uh, they find these ancient scrolls, and, and, and it's actually the critics who are most excited about it at first because they're like, aha, now we'll examine the ancient writings and we'll compare them to the Bible of today, and it will disprove the Bible. It will show the changes that have taken place. And, and you notice that they don't, uh, you know, stand around and uh, bow to the authority. They just sort of sink into obscurity because it confirms because they're accurate, they're the same, they're unchanged. And the reason that, that that way is because the men who made the copies had the mindset they, they were handling the very word of God. And they, they had a process by which they said, you know, we don't want to alter the word, not, not even in the slightest. So they, they went through a process of praying and fasting for seven days, and then they would shave their heads and shave their beards and burn all of that hair as an offering to the Lord, and then they would begin copying. And their method of copying was to copy letter for letter because they understood that if you read a verse, you've heard it so many times that, that you might just from your own memory try to recite it out with your pen. So they would literally... For example, they're doing it in the Hebrew and the Greek, but they would go like A, A, B, B, C, C, and they would copy space, space. They would copy letter for letter exactly according to what was there. Finger on the letter, moving along through, copying letter for letter. <clears throat> if they messed up at all, they would stop, 
burn the scroll, pray and fast for seven days, shave their head and their beards, burn the hair, and then start again. Copying letter for letter. When they were done, they had two mathematical sequences that they worked with. Every book of the Bible had the letters counted. So they knew, knew how many letters were supposed to be in the scroll. So just for a number, let's say that it was half a million, 500,000 letters in the scroll. When he was done copying, someone would sit down separate from him and count. One, two, three, four. And if they got to the end and they were a single number off, they would go through a verification process, but they would burn the scroll. The, the uh, scribe would then pray and fast for seven days, shave his head, his beard, burn the hair, and start again. Okay. The second numeric process that they put it through was that they assigned, well, it wasn't that they assigned, it's that their letters were their numbers also. So, so when they got done, they would add them also. So think of it this way, with our alphabet, A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, right, and so on and so forth. So, so if you were going to add it up, it would be A, 1, plus B, 2 is, is 3, C is 3, 3 plus 3 is 6, and they would go through the whole document and add all of the numeric values of the letters up, and just again for a number, let's say the total was supposed to be 1 million. If it was a single number off, then you have to assume, and they had, again, ways of verifying that with others working with the scroll. Uh, if it was a single number off, they, then you have to assume that somewhere in there, there's an incorrect letter. Because you do the math, and if it comes out as wrong, then burn the scroll, pray and fast for seven days, shave your head, your beard, burn the hair, start again. So the copies of the scripture that were made were hyper-accurate, hyper-accurate. And honestly, um, most people wouldn't even engage in being a biblical scribe, right? I mean, if, if you want a copy of, you know, Robin Hood, fine, I'll write you, you know, I'll make a copy of that. But the Bible, I'm not one who deals in copies of the Bible. That's how they approached it. it to them, it was far too serious a thing. You're handling the word of God. You alter the word of God. Right? I mean, it says right in the book, if you, if you take away from the book, your name will be taken away from the book of life. You add to the book, the curse is found and the book will be added to you. No thanks. I'm not interested. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so, so here, when, when Peter is saying, it's not tedious to me. I want to leave a record for you. It's important we understand how significant the written record is. You know, I, I am sick to death of all these movies that talk about prophecy, like prophecy happens all the time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe you're not. I mean, do you guys realize that George Lucas, this is going to sound so stupid when I say it. George Lucas wrote into his movies that Darth Vader's mother was a virgin. Anakin Skywalker's mother conceived Anakin as a virgin. No, blasphemy is what that is. Okay, you know, you know, all the Star Wars fan like you know shrink right up when I say this stuff. You know, I mean, let's get let's get real about some things. Now I'm being humorous when I say, you know, the way entertainment 
right, attacks the supernatural. Okay, Mary Poppins was a witch, <laughs> right? I, look at what Mary Poppins could do. Look at what Mary Poppins did, right? I mean, it's just, you know, we go, oh, that's so entertaining, you know. No? Okay, I, I know I'm going too far. I know that I'm being over the top with this, okay? But what I'm saying to you is that when you create counterfeits, okay, and, and, and the cheaper the counterfeit is, the more it devalues the genuine. Okay, if I sit here and I say to you, uh, human life is far more valuable than animal life, right? I, I know as good, solid believers, you're going to be like, yeah, of course. You know, you know who most influences our culture in this regard is, again, Disney, right? Honestly, who cares if you blow a hole in Bambi? It's steak. That's you know what I'm talking about. I mean, and and everybody's like, oh, I'm so brokenhearted about that. Biblically, the Lord isn't. Okay, He created it. He's the one who told us to kill them and eat them. That the Lord said that. Okay, if you don't want to do that, that's perfectly fine. But our culture, right, right now which is, is literally, I mean, when we say animal rights, like most people are like, right, we ought to take care of the animals. Yeah, I don't think you understand what animal rights means. Okay, animal rights means, ready for this? The animals get to vote. People are like, what? Come on, this guy's a lunatic. No, no, literally, animal rights activism says that we know how to examine the thought process of the animal kingdom and that the animals need legal representation in these. So, so this lawyer will represent all these cows in the voting booth. We shake our heads and say, ridiculous, it's happening in our culture. Because we have abandoned the word of God. We aren't looking at the word of God for the authority that it is. We, 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 we listen to entertainment. We look at all these different things and we allow it to influence the hearts and the minds and the lives and the thought process. You know, the people don't think about the fact like the most impressionable people in our culture, obviously, are children. Okay, uh, th the place where they are the most impressionable is from the age of zero to 18 months. That has more to do with what your personality is going to be than the rest of your life combined. That's frightening. It's frightening when you consider who the people are that are raising children from zero to 18 months. I look back at what was I doing? When my children from zero to 18 months, I, I just fall on my face and pray for those poor souls. Okay? And, and, and now, right, then they come up through the years and they're being influenced by all the... And then we send them off to a government-run school system and say, you guys take care of the rest. We're going to put them in Sunday school for a half hour each week. That should cover it. This is what we're doing. 
This is what we're doing. And, and now look at the culture. Oh, it's completely woke. And everybody's going, how did this happen? Abandonment of God's word. Not even considering at all the things that were so painstakingly, carefully written, protected, preserved, delivered to the human race. And the human race just brushes it aside. This is, this is what we're allowing to happen in our culture. Peter is saying this is very significant and it's no big deal. This is the most important thing I could ever do is make a record of these things and leave them for you so that once I'm gone, you have something to rely upon. That's significant. That's very, very significant for us to have this level of respect for God's word and how it should be affected. Our families, our children, our communities. It is it is no wonder to me as I look around and see what's going on uh, as to how and why these things are taking place. So, uh, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. So if you thought that I was just sort of like shoving that in there as part of the thought process inappropriately, here he is saying we didn't follow cunningly devised fables fables, stories, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, this in particular, he lays out here in talking about the transfiguration, okay? Um, what a spoiler in this, okay? It, it, he talks about the holy mountain. You know, transfiguration being what he's talking about. Uh, if, if we didn't have this book of the Bible open and be on the subject matter, and I just said to you, the holy mountain, your mind most probably would go to Sinai. Okay? Ten commandments, Moses, right? Peter says, no, the holy mountain was the mountain of transfiguration. Okay? Again, spoiler alert to the whole thing. Um what was the biblical significance there, right? They get the whole conversation, and we'll go through some of it here. But God shuts Peter's mouth and says, you know, it's good that we're here. We should make three tabernacles. You know, he, He's rambling on, and the Lord's basically, I know I'm interjecting, but the Lord just says, like, shut up. Who you need to listen to is my son who's standing right in front of you. Do we need the, the, the Ten Commandments? Not if you've got Jesus Christ. Do you need, not if you've got Jesus. Do you need, not if you've got Jesus. Okay, what you need to hear is Jesus. Clearly, I mean, you understand the hyperbole, right? I mean, obviously you're going to need the Ten Commandments. Obviously you're going to need the Old Testament. Obviously we're going to teach the whole counsel of God's Word, as I've been venting on here this evening. But what do you need to pay attention to? Jesus. His teaching. Listen to Jesus. Let him, let him speak to you about the Old Testament. What do you need to be paying attention to? The Word of God. You know, so we're not telling you cleverly made up fables. You know, George Lucas. Um, you know, Matrix series. You know, prophecies of scientific weirdness. No. No, we're... We're talking, we're talking to you truth of God's word. 
that no one else has anything like. And I, I hear this uh, from people. I, I debate people, you know, in conversation. I don't turn it into a podium debate, but, you know, people raise questions and I'll quickly land on, hey, you say that, but, you know, what's the truth of that? Well, there's prophecy in other, uh, you know, religions. Name one. T tell me about that. Because there are none. God alone calls the authority of prophecy his. Well, what you're looking at is all the other religions of the world are trying to go, well, hey, prophecy is significant. We should do some of that. So, so then they, after the fact, are trying to put things together. The very things that they accuse the scripture of, right? Uh, when Daniel makes prophecies that are so hyper-accurate, when Isaiah gives things that couldn't have possibly been known, right? When the Lord predicts the coming of Cyrus 150 years before he's even born, then the critics say, well, they had to have written that after the fact. No, no, that's what, that's what the false religions of the world are doing. Trying to imitate the genuine word of God. Peter is here telling us what the power is. You guys really have to grasp the value, the unspeakable value of God's word and what it has for us. The world around us is just continuously trying to tear at and pull down. Oh, it was uh, Spurgeon and all of his great eloquence that said, the anvil of the Bible has worn out countless hammers. You know, let them pound on it. Let them say whatever they want to. You know, it was C.S. Lewis that said, you need not defend the word of God. It's like a young lion. Just let it out of its cage. Right? It will tear everything else to shreds. The word of God is extremely powerful. We're leaving this written record for you. This isn't some cleverly devised fable. We saw his majesty. We were eyewitnesses to it. it. This isn't just the general overview of we saw his wonderful ministry. We were on the mountain and we saw him in his glory. That's the majesty that he's referring to. The veil was ripped out of the way. Right? They had seen Jesus as the humble servant day after day after day after week after month after year. And then he had made that statement just six verses earlier about some of you will not perish until you have seen the kingdom of God. And then let's go up on the mountain. And then the veil is removed and they see Jesus in the kingdom. Right? It's recorded that they actually fell asleep and Peter woke up to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Having a conversation about how Jesus was going to, it's interesting the way it's worded in the Greek languages, is how Jesus was going to accomplish his death. Right? I mean, if I said to you, someday you'll accomplish your death. Right? You'd be like, I'm not really working hard at it. You know, it's just like, it's just kind of sneaking up on me right now. You know, one breath at a time. I'm getting closer and closer to it. It's not, it's not a work you accomplished, whereas Jesus was. Right? 
He, why? Because he could have brushed aside all of that and just demonstrated his glory. Instead, he marched himself through the process to his own execution for our sake so that we could experience his glory. So we saw, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We actually hear that twice, don't we, in the Scripture? The first occasion is at the baptism. John the Baptist brings him up out of the water, and this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The addition and the necessity in the moment on the Mount of Transfiguration was when the Lord added to the phrase, hear ye him. <laughs> you don't need to listen to Peter. Right? John there includes the fact that uh, Peter said, it is good that we're here, let us build three tabernacles, because it said, not knowing what to say. <laughs> What's that old thing, right? If you don't know what to say, don't say anything, right? Not knowing what to say, it's good that we're here. We should build three tabernacles, and that's the places of worship, so you can kind of appreciate Peter's thought, like, oh, this would be great. We could set up a school of ministry right here, you know? We'll have Jesus one-on-one and Moses one-on-one and Elijah one-on-one. This would be wonderful. And the voice basically cuts him off and says, no, no, basically very graciously, very gently, this is my son. This is my son. Hear ye him. Pay attention to what he is saying. When he heard this voice which came from heaven, we were with him only on the holy mountain. We heard it. There were three witnesses, right? Peter, James, and John heard that voice. They were told not to say anything until after his death. So they, they all testified to it, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We're saying that a lot nowadays, about, oh, it's getting so dark. Oh, can you believe that, that makes it better, right? I mean, you know, in certain settings, you need a really, really intense light in order for it to have an effect, right? If they're all varying light sources and you need to read something that's extremely small, you need the extremely bright light in that setting to accomplish what you want to. The darker it gets the easier it is for your light to shine, right? It doesn't have to be some magnificent million candle watt, who knows what thing that burns a hole from here to eternity, right? Your birthday cake candle will do just fine as long as it's lit, right? Keep that trimmed and burning for the Lord and its simplicity and uh, the world will take notice. The darker things get, the easier it is to shine. Till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Once it's dawn, 
then your light really doesn't matter. We don't need that. And I couple this together with 1 Corinthians 13, where we're told that now we know in part, and we will know fully, right? You know, speak in tongues, you know, be done away with, prophesy, that will come to an end. Sure. Yeah, I mean, really no need to speak in tongues about the glorious works of God if I can just say to you, and Jesus is right there. If we're all face to face with him, no need for anyone in the room to prophesy because, well, there he is. Right? When the perfect, the perfect, definite article, the perfect, has come, then you don't need any more of the imperfect. Right? My lamp burning, pretty insignificant in that environment. When the radiant glory of Jesus Christ has, has outshined the sun. Literally, right? The sun isn't going to even be needed anymore. In the new heaven, in the new earth, right? There won't be a sun. It will be his glory that illuminates all things. So, you know, you are the light of the world. Certainly right now, you know. Jesus told us to let our light so shine before men. You know, glorify the Lord. Yeah, right. Now, in the darkness, uh, the coming illumination in our hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Wow, don't we wish the world knew that? Especially the Christian world. You listen to some people's interpretation of God's word, and uh, you're left really perplexed listening to the garbage that's being declared. I just um, feel really aggravated when I see some of these false teachers making the declarations that they do about their abilities, their powers, their prophecies. And then nothing happens and no one says, pack your junk and get out. You know, no one says uh, you should relinquish your position of authority within Christianity and step down and no longer, you know, torture anyone's ears with your false teachings. Instead, they just blather on. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is why it can't ever be false. Right? If someone says, thus saith the Lord, and then it does not come true, um, that's why the scripture, well, you know, look at Deuteronomy, right? If they prophesy and it doesn't come true, take them outside the city and stone them to death. That's pretty straightforward, right? So definitely you should not be listening to them anymore. Okay, I think that there's room for repentance. If someone was saying things that are incorrect in the past and they repent of that and come to Christ, I mean, seriously, guys, right? Paul was Saul of Tarsus, right? Blaspheming and causing others to blaspheme and attacking and murdering Christians. And look what happened when that man repented. And I mean truly repented, turned around. I went the other direction. There's a great uh, message in that. But, uh, you know, for what's going on inside our environment and what we're seeing 
in this setting, it's uh, important to understand that uh, there is an account, a someday accountability. So this issue of it isn't cunningly devised uh, fables, it is prophecy, it is the fulfilled prophecy of God's word. I just want to touch on this, and this will probably be all the time we have. Um, there are those that say this was a cunningly devised fable, that the apostles made this all up. And there's a few different conspiracy theories out there, and I just want to touch on something that's very significant for us as we close this evening. Um, you know, there are those that say Jesus was part of the conspiracy, that that he um, had a plan from the beginning where he was going to go through this process and, you know, wanted to give the world these teachings, but that he wasn't really God. That's a misunderstanding. And uh, so what he did was he formulated a plan with Judas where Judas was going to betray him. He and Judas knew that. And uh, so uh, they worked it out with the Romans and um, uh, what they did was uh, they brought Jesus in, went through all of this mock trial. He was found innocent and released, but the agreement with Rome was that in order to end the ministry and free Jesus from the public limelight, they crucified another man. So they scourged that person beyond recognition. And then they brought him out and they went and crucified him. And then Jesus ran away with Mary Magdalene, married her, and they had children, which became the kings of Europe. So, you know, so, you know, you say, oh, I've never heard that before. Surely you've heard of the Da Vinci Code. Okay. So that's that whole thing, which interestingly enough, uh, Mr. Brown stole from a French author who originally wrote the book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. And uh, Brown stole it, rewrote it a little bit, published it as a movie, made millions. He was sued by the original author and lost, by the way, and had to pay out huge sums of money to the original author. But that man was simultaneously sued also by the French government and imprisoned and lost all of his money anyway because he was writing that book and manipulating the circumstances to try and claim himself as royalty. He was trying to make claims to the French throne and, uh, you know, present himself as a knight or something. So he would he would get inheritance and be given title and all these things. And he was found to be fraudulent himself. So cunningly devised fables. You understand? Uh, there's the Passover theory. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, that one also. So the Passover theory is uh, that. Um, and it has nothing to do with Passover. They've just labeled it as that. That uh, that the entirety of Christianity was a lie fabricated by the apostles. Uh, in that Jesus was crucified, he was killed, but he never rose from the dead. Uh, so they stole the body, which we hear that lie in the scripture, and they perpetuated the myth that Jesus had risen from the dead and they all, literally, the story goes that they all slit their wrists and shared their blood with one another, took an oath of blood as blood brothers that they, under pain of death, would never reveal to anyone the lie uh, that uh, Jesus never was resurrected from the dead. So, uh, you know, you're going to run into different, you know, you'll be watching Nova some Sunday afternoon when you should have been in church. But, you know, and they're... they're 
uh, you'll hear this garbage uh, being spewed out by some really smooth English accent that you know makes you feel really intimidated. And uh, in the end, it's all just a load of junk. Okay, here's what I want to get to within this. Every one of these men paid for this truth with their lives. Okay, um, if I'm part of the eleven and we all make the vow together, uh, the first time that they start peeling the skin off my body, I'm going to immediately tell everyone that we're all liars. You know, it's not true. He died. He never resurrected. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to spare myself the pain. And anyone would. Okay. Simon Peter died 33, 34 years after the death of Christ, according to Smith's Bible Dictionary. There is satisfactory evidence that he and Paul were the founder of the church at Rome and died in that city. The time and manner of the apostles' martyrdom are less certain, according to the early writers. He died at or about the same time with Paul. And the Neronian persecution, uh, A.D. 67 to 68, all agree that he was crucified. Oregon says that Peter felt himself to be unworthy to be put to death in the same manner as his master and was therefore at his own request crucified with his head downward. I'm sure you've heard that account. Uh, I'm leaving out a number of the other details that are very difficult to verify. But well, that's, uh, that's a certainty. James, the son of Zebedee, was put to death by Herod Agrippa uh, shortly before the day of Passover in the year 44 or about 11 years after the death of Christ from Acts 12, verses 1 and 2. You can take note of that there. John, no death date given by early writers. Death date is by conjecture only and is variously assigned as being between 89 A.D. to 120 A.D. Andrew, no accurate death date given. A variety of traditions say he preached in Scythia in Greece, in Asia Minor, and Thrace. He is reported to have been crucified at Patri in Achaia. Philip, again, the Bible does not say when he died, nor do we have accurate information according to Church history, he prayed in Phrygia and died at Heropolis. Uh, we have the tomb of the Apostle Philip found in Heropolis. Uh, that was in 2011. They discovered that tomb, so that's an interesting note. Bartholomew, no information concerning his death, not even by tradition. Uh, we know that he, simply know he was martyred. Details, unknown. Matthew, uh, must have lived many years as an apostle since he was the author of the Gospel of Matthew, which was written at least 20 years after the death of Christ. Uh, this is the reason that we believe he stayed for 15 years at Jerusalem, after which he went on a mission, uh, missionary journey to uh, Persians, uh, Parthians, and the Medes. He was killed in Ethiopia uh, as a martyr for his faith. Various descriptions of his death given there. Thomas, early traditions, uh, believed in the 4th century, he passed away, says he preached in Parthia and Persia. His final burial was in Edessa. Uh, the later traditions carry him farther east than that. His martyrdom, whether in Persia or India, is said to have been by a lance. 
and commemorated by the Latin Church on December 21st, the Greek Church on October 6th, and by the people in India on July 1st. So you can choose your dates accordingly, but run through with a lance. Uh, we know for certain. James Alpheus, we know he lived at least five years after the death of Christ because of the mention in the Bible. According to tradition, James, son of Alpheus, was thrown down from the temple by the scribes and the Pharisees. He was then stoned and his brains bashed out with a fuller's club. So again, uh, these men all gave their lives for uh, the gospel. Simon the Canaanite, no information either in the Bible or uh, tradition as far as dates or location, but we do have uh, the historic information that he was put to death for his faith. Jude, Thaddeus, according to the tradition Jude taught in Armenia, uh, Syria and Persia, where he was martyred, tradition tells us that he was buried in Terra Calasia in what is now Iran. And of course, if you want to include Judas Iscariot, uh, he killed himself by hanging, Matthew 27, uh, verse 5. So all of them died. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't myself include Judas as a martyr uh, in that, but the rest gave their lives, other than John. But uh, honestly, um, if you're John, I would prefer to have taken a shorter route toward the exit than um, you know having been beaten and tortured and boiled in oil and then uh, you know we read that he was banished to the island of Padmos and that's in his 90s so just think about all that you struggle with health wise right now however old you are then multiply that by however much you can and put yourself in the realm of 90s where they brutally wake you up every morning, rarely with any food, in the dark. And they march you to the quarries in the dark under candlelight where you begin hammering out rocks as the dawn is breaking. And so they, you're at work swinging the hammer as the sun rises. And they keep you there until it's black and you can't work anymore. And then they march you back to your cell and lock you in. And they wake you up the next morning in the black and they march you out and you start swinging the hammer in the dark. And that's seven days a week. And it's a death camp. You know, uh, part of what the Germans were thinking uh, when they put over the gate at Auschwitz, freedom through work, was that mindset. You're going to come there, and the only way you're going to be free of this place is when work has killed you. And that, that's, that's how, you know, and I've, I've literally stood at those gates and seen that sign. It's, it's chilling. It's chilling to be there. You know, right, right next to it, you know, in Auschwitz is high-voltage barbed wire. Not electric fence like you have at the farm. High voltage. You touch that and smoke's going to roll off you and you're going to land on the ground dead. Um, you know, brutality is what John experienced. Brutality. 
um, you know, I'm sure, like Paul, you know, when he said, you know, we despaired of life. I'm sure John experienced that at times. These men had the opportunity to confess if this was not a result. Why did they, why did they continue? Because they had been eyewitnesses to the glory. They had seen Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Right? They saw him drained out. Uh, you know, if you've had the unfortunate experience of seeing a dead body, and I do not mean one prepared by the mortuary. If you have been in the room with a raw, dead corpse, there's a presence of death. That is unmistakable. Just the way there's no life in that frame is there's no question. When a person is dead and you're staring at death that way, it is sobering. Sobering. They had seen Jesus in that condition and then resurrected. And they received the promise of life. The power over death. So when it came to the moment of, do you want to hang on to this story you're telling, or do you want to die? Every one of them said, I'll take death. Because my Lord and my King has the power of resurrection in his hands. I have no fear of death. I'm in the hands of my king. The same way that my king said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I get to say the same thing to the one who called me friend. I get to hand my spirit over to him. Do your worst. That's what they said. You know, you got to take the intensity of what Peter is saying. This is not a cunningly devised fable. We were witness to this power. We were witness to this strength. That's what, that's what you and I hold to. That's the same God we serve. That's our King. That's our Master. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The days are dark. The hour is late. So be it. Let your light so shine before men. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll pick up at chapter 2 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray together. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for being our king. We surely submitted ourselves to sinful authorities that ruled over us as cruel masters. We found ourselves empty and we heard your voice in our hearts and our minds and we have surrendered to you. Lord, to whatever degree we falter, Forgive us. Help us to cling to you. Help us to stare steadfastly into your presence. To wait upon the fulfillment of your promises. In the interim, help us to share that message with the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.